Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Isaiah, the 17th chapter. Now then, I've tried to prepare 17, 18, and 19, and I'm not sure where we'll get to it because we want to deal with it a little bit different than we have because the verse-by-verse commentary is good, and we will read the verses, but there are so many things that need to be pointed out as a kind of a generality of the whole chapter and take the subject matter in general, that we'll read the 17th chapter, discuss it, and then possibly the 18th, and then the 19th. The 17th chapter has to do with the burden of Damascus, the 18th chapter the burden of Ethiopia, and then the 19th chapter the burden of Egypt. All three of these have to do with God's judgments upon these various ones because of various things. Uh, and we'll talk about the 17th chapter and then get into the others, other ones. Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 17. We'll read verse 1. It says, The burden of Damascus, behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it shall be a ruinous heap. We're going to have God's judgment upon uh, Damascus and also on, upon Ephraim because it's spoken of in verse 3. It says, It shall become, it shall be a ruinous heap. The cities of Ario are forsaken, they shall be for flocks. In other words, it'd be like a pasture. The cities will be reduced to nothing but where the animals would lie down. Which shall lie down, and none shall make them afraid. The fortress also shall cease from Ephraim, and the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria. They shall be as the glory of the children of Israel, saith the Lord of hosts. And in that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob shall be made thin, and the fatness of his flesh shall wax lean, and shall be as when the harvestman gather the corn and reap the ears with his arm. It shall be as he that gathereth ears in the valley of Rephim. Yet gleaning grapes shall be left in it, as the shaking of an olive tree, two or three berries in the top of the uppermost bough, four or five in the outmost fruitful branches thereof, saith the Lord God of Israel. At that day shall a man look to his maker, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. And he shall not look to the altars, the work of his hands, neither shall respect that which his fingers have made, either the groves or the images. In that day shall his strong cities be as a forsaken bough, and an uppermost branch, which they left because of the children of Israel, and there shall be desolation. Because thou hast forgotten the God of thy salvation, and hast not been mindful of the rock of thy strength, therefore shalt thou plant pleasant plants, and shall set it with strange slips. In that day shalt thou make thy plant to grow, and, it, and in the morning shalt thou make thy seed to flourish. But the harvest shall be a heap a heap in the day of grief and and of desperate sorrow. Woe to the multitude of many people which make noise like the noise of seas, and to the rushing of the nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God shall rebuke them, and they shall flee afar off, and shall be chased as the chaff of the mountains before the wind, and like the rolling thing before the whirlwind, like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. And behold, at eventide trouble, and before the morning 
He is not. This is the portion of them that spoil us and the lot of them that rob us. You might say that there's three sections here. God's judgment upon Damascus is verses 1 through 1 and 2. And God's judgment upon Ephraim, verses 3 and actually 4 through 11. And then we find uh, verses 12 through 14, woe to the enemies of Israel. In studying this section of Scripture, you have to realize that Damascus is being addressed, but it's really the nation Syria. Damascus, a chief city, was being addressed, but God's reference was to Syria. And then Ephraim is addressed in verse 3, and that is a reference to Israel. So actually, you're talking about Syria and Israel that are going to undergo God's judgment, and that we're going to undergo God's judgment, even in the Old Testament. These two nations were allied. Can you imagine? Syria and Israel, allied. Look over there now. Syria and Israel were allied in their opposition to both Assyria and Judah. Judah, the two tribes. Ephraim representing Israel, the ten tribes. But Israel which was Ephraim, Ephraim representing Israel, was allied with Syria. If you look over in that land today, you think, well, that was altogether out of character, wasn't it? And if you think of Assyria, actually Assyria is uh, what we know today as Iraq. Can you imagine Iraq allied with, uh, or with uh, Judah? It's kind of difficult to understand. So these two nations, Damascus representing Syria and Ephraim representing Israel, were in the opposition to both Assyria and Judah. So the prophet spoke to both in one message, and he warned Damascus, the capital city of Syria, that the city would be taken by the enemy, the very first verse, and he said it would be made a ruinous heap. And this occurred when the Assyrians conquered uh, Aram, uh, and that was Syria, in 732 B.C. Following their usual custom, the Assyrians deported many of the citizens which left the land and the cities deserted. Now, you need to really get these uh, countries in mind. You need to get into mind that Syria and Israel were both in opposition to Assyria and Judah, so that you have really the nation of God's people divided. You have Israel and Judah divided, and you have their allies that are enemies with one another. And so they make compromises with both, both make compromises with other nations when they should have been united themselves. It's kind of a sad thing, isn't it? The burden of Damascus. Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city. And it shall be a ruinous heap. In the verse 3, the fortress also shall cease from Ephraim, Israel's fortress, and the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria. They shall be as, as the glory of the children of Israel, saith the Lord of hosts. So what we see then is the fall of Damascus was a warning to Israel, the northern kingdom that had broken away from Judah, which is God's kingdom, Judah's and Judah's God, 
they had broken away. In 1 Kings chapter 12, we referred to it this morning in our message, how that Jeroboam had made a compromise to make the golden calves in uh, Jerusalem so that he would not let the ten tribes return to the house of David. And he would not let the kingdom be reunited. And he wanted to keep it under his control. And we find that uh, that's why he made the convenient worship places in uh, Dan and Bethel, so that the, in the northern part of the kingdom and the southern part of the kingdom, they would still be uh, controlled by him. The prophet here used several images to describe Ephraim's downfall. The destruction of their fortified cities, we read that in verse 3. In verse 4, the setting of the sun, notice, in that day shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob shall be made thin and the fatness of his flesh shall wax lean. The setting sun in the first part is really referred to the glory of Jacob. And in the last part, the wasting away of a sick person, it says the fatness of his flesh shall wax lean in verse 4. And then the gleaning of a small harvest in verses 5 and 6. Remember it says the grapes shall be left in it, verse 6, as the shaking of an olive tree. Two or three berries in the top of the uppermost bough. He's talking about the gleaning of a very small harvest. And then decaying of a garden, the garden of a wasteland, you go on down to verses 9 through 11, you'll find that that ha- will happen. It will be like a wasteland. It says in verse 9, In that day shall his strong cities be as a forsaken bough and an uppermost branch which they left because of the children of Israel, and there shall be desolation. You know, when God brings all these things to pass, the overflowing flood and the blowing away of the chaff and the tumbleweeds in a storm. And this overflowing flood is like the, the enemy rushing in upon them. Look in verses 12 and 13. It says, Woe to the multitude of many people which make a noise like the noise of the seas and the rushing of the nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters. But God shall rebuke him, them and they shall flee far away. So you find that all of these things are happening to Damascus and Ephraim because of God's judgment upon them. And when the judgment came, the people of Israel realized that their idols could not save them. So they turned to the Lord for help. You know, it's, it's a sad thing that we have to come to the end of our rope, so to speak, before we turn to God for help. That's what Israel would do. They waited till the very last minute to turn to God. And, uh, but they waited till it was too late. They waited till it was too late. And the nation was sick with sin and beyond recovery. And once these winds, storm winds of judgment began to blow and the floods began to rise, the nation was without hope. And Assyria conquered the kingdom of Israel and it was no more. We find that there's a reference to waiting too late in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. You know what it says? It says, Wisdom crieth without. She uttereth her voice in the streets. Listen carefully. She crieth in the chief place of concourse, in the openings of the gates, in the city she uttereth her words, saying, How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And to the scorners delight, and the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. And God says, Turn you at my reproof. He said that to Israel, he says that to all. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. God did that. And they knew what God's word was. And he says, Because I have called, and ye refused, 
I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But ye have set at naught all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as, a des- as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when re- distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. And here's the reason. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. You see, God calls so long, and He deals so long, and He stretches out His hand so long, till finally Israel's hope was gone in the context of what we're reading in the book of Isaiah. They had gone too far. You know, the Bible says, He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. The reason it says, For they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. Isn't it a sad thing that God's chosen people had to eat as it's spoken to, to individuals here in Proverbs and as to nations, that God's people had to eat of the fruit of their own ways because they rebelled against God. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. Now the last word in the Proverbs 1, verse 33 says, and this is the last verse, But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely, and shall be quiet from fear of evil. I take it this lesson tells us that it pays to listen to God before judgment comes, doesn't it? And they would not do that. The emphasis in this section is on the God of Israel. He is the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, who controls the armies of heaven and in earth. Look at verse 3. It says, They shall be as the glory of the children of Israel, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 3 is the Lord of hosts. In verse, uh, He is also the God of Israel. Look in verse 6. It says, Therefore saith the Lord God of Israel, That's the last part of verse 6. Verse 7, He is uh, our Maker and the Holy One of Israel. Look, at that day shall a man look to his Maker, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. And verse 10, look at verse 10. It says that he He is the God of our salvation and our rock. Because thou hast forgotten the God of thy salvation has not been mindful of the rock of thy strength. How foolish the Israelites were to trust man-made idols instead of trusting the living God. And they were trusting man-made idols. But like Israel of old, people today trust the gods they have made instead of God who made them. And these gods that they have made include false gods such as pleasure and wealth and military might and scientific achievement. And even religious experience. Some of these are false gods. Of pleasure. Can you imagine God of pleasure? The Bible says that in the last days men shall be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Have you ever seen folks that all they want to do is have a good time? Now, I, can, I like to be happy. But having a good time is not necessarily being happy. There's a lot of people that go to, out to have a good time and they're lost in the crowd and they're just as sad and lonely as they can be. And you, you ask them in the spur of the moment, you having a good time? In the emotional stir of all that's going on, they said, yes, I'm having a good time. They go home and they say, you know, they're just as empty as they can be. 
You know what really being happy is? Jesus tells us the happiness we have in our preamble, life, liberty, and in our uh, nation, the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So that's something you're chasing, isn't it? Pursue. When you pursue something, you're trying to chase it and trying to catch it. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, I'm glad that we have the privilege of doing that. But the Bible says, Jesus said, blessed is the man. The Bible says in Psalm 1, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. And it means blessednesses or happinesses. And in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of, of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn. A mourner being blessed. Happy? The word means happy. For they shall be comforted. goes on and on. Blessed are, they, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Humility. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. You mean to be hungry and thirsty is a ha- happiness? Yes. If it's after righteousness, it is. And all these are links in the chain that show us what happiness really is. goes on to tell us about the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. tells us, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. It says, blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. What about that one? For great is their reward in heaven. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are you when men shall persecute you and say, All man of evil against you falsely for my sake. Well, he says, Great is your reward in heaven. So persecuted they the prophets that were before you. Can you imagine that you can say, If you're persecuted, you're blessed. And Jesus said, Great is your reward in heaven. You know, if the fellow that was persecuting you knew that he was just making you have more rewards, he'd quit it in a moment, wouldn't he? So that fellow, you know, all I'm doing to him is just giving him more gold. It's just adding up treasures in heaven for him. Well, that's exactly what he's doing, whether he's mindful of it. He's probably not mindful of it, or he certainly wouldn't do it. But the thing about it is, we we just uh, seem to always, you know, they treat me so mean. Well, they may, there, there may be many that treat you mean, but God treats you good. And I'd rather be in this category. If God be for us, who can be against us? You know, just let the wolves howl. And go right on. You're protected. You're hidden under the shadow of His wings. He's a refuge for us today. And so many are trusting like Israel of old in the false gods instead of the true God. And the false gods of pleasure and of wealth and of military might, of scientific achievement. All of these things people trust in when they should be trusting in God. Now I want you to look at the next section. I don't know how much time we'll have, but maybe we can deal with this. Chapter 18 is only seven verses. Uh, I doubt if we get into 19 because that has to do with the burden of Egypt, which is quite lengthy. But in chapter 18, the seven verses, and we have the land beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, verses 1 through 7. Um, yeah, in chapter 18, verses 1 through 7. Couldn't be verse 1 through 6. I've got that wrong. Oh, I, I see my outline is different. In other words, chapter 18, verses 1 through 7 cover these three things. The land beyond the rivers, that's verse 1. And then uh, verse 2, the ambassadors that are sent out, verse 2. And then the trumpet blown and Jehovah's message, verses 3 through 6. And Israel restored to Mount Zion, verse 7. So you have four sections here, and I'm sorry I 
didn't want to get you confused on that first one, but I had written down chapter 18, verses 1 through 7, which includes the whole of this outline. So what we see here in verse 1, the land beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, it says, Woe unto the land, woe to the land shadowing with wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. And when God says woe, He means look out. He means there's trouble. The original text has Cush, a land that is included, uh, that included modern Ethiopia. It included the Sudan and Somalia, by the way. And Isaiah called it a land of whirring wings, not only because of the insects that infested the land, but also because of the frantic diplomatic activity going on as the nation sought alliances to protect them from Assyria. And he pictures their ambassadors in verse 2 in their light, swift boats going to the African nations for help. But God tells them to go back home because he would deal with Assyria himself apart from the help of any army. You know, God doesn't have to have our earthly armies to win the battle. Sometimes we think he does. But he can pick out just a few. You know, the servants of Abraham went in and they fought against an army. And rescued Lot, remember? He just took his hired servants. They were not trained warriors. And God was with them. Gideon didn't have a trained army, but he, and God gave him 32,000. He reduced it to 300, and they took pitchers and lanterns, and they went out and they took their trumpets, and they broke the pitchers, and the lanterns, the lights shone, and they blowed their trumpets, and it scared the enemy to death, and they began to fight with one another, and God gave them the victory. You see, you don't have to be mighty in military power to win the, win the war. Because if God is for you, everything will work out in a better way for us. In fact, God warns us against, against trusting in our human strength and our military power. In Isaiah 31, verse 1, and we, when we deal with Egypt, we'll get this lesson very prominent because it says, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because there are many and horsemen because they are very strong, but they look not to the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Egypt is a picture of the world. And if we look to the world and look to our own scientific developments and our own things of, of, uh, that we have under our control as human beings, we think, for our strength, instead of looking to God for our strength, then we're looking in the wrong way. That's what was happening back here. Isaiah chapter 18, verse 2 says, "...that sendeth ambassadors by the sea, even in vessels of bulrushes upon the water, saying, Go ye swift messengers to a nation scattered." And peeled to a people terrible from their beginning hitherto, a nation meted out and trodden down, whose land the rivers have spoiled. And then God sounds the trumpet in verse 3. And all ye inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth shall uh, see ye when he lifteth up an ensign on the mountains, and when he bloweth a trumpet, hear ye. So God blows his trumpet and he gives his message. For so the Lord said to me, I will take my rest and I will consider in my dwelling place like a clear heat upon the herbs and like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For for the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he shall both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. God says, I'm going to trim this thing down because he was bringing judgment and that was his message. 
And in verse 6, they shall be left together unto the fowls of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth. And the fowls shall summer upon them and all the beasts of the earth shall winter upon them. In other words, they'd be for the food for the carrion birds and for the wild beasts. And God uses that same kind of description in the book of Revelation in chapter 14. And also when the Lord comes in chapter 19, He says, Come to the supper, the great supper of God that He's prepared. In Revelation 19, when Jesus comes in power and great glory, and He's going to tell about We'll get into that in a later, at a later point in the message. So we see that in contrast to the frantic activity of men on earth, is the calm patience of God in heaven. Look, we've seen the frantic happenings of the men, but look in verse 4. Look how God is so calm and patient. It says, For, the, for so the Lord said, said unto me, I will take my rest. Is God excited? He doesn't have to get excited about anything. He always has everything under perfect control. Man rushes to and fro and he's trying to grasp for this and escape that and do another. But God says, look at the serene uh, scene in verse 4. And I will consider in my dwelling place like a clear heat upon herbs and like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. His calm rest. As he that awaits the right time to reap the harvest of judgment. Assyria is pictured as a ripening vine that will never survive. For God says he will cut it down in verse 5. And in verse 6, Isaiah describes the feast that God spreads for the birds and beasts that we were just talking about. And by the way, if you turn in Isaiah 37, verse 36, there's 185,000 of these Assyrian soldiers, the corpses of of the enemy. Turn to Isaiah 37 and verse 36. It says, Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred and fourscore and five thousand. hundred and eighty-five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. You see, God says that He's going to spread a feast for the birds and the beasts. If you turn to Revelation chapter 14 and chapter 19, you'll have these two images that are still carried out. Let's just turn to the one in chapter 19. It would be too lengthy to take both of them. But in chapter 19 of Revelation, verses 17 through 21, it says in verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven. Now this is when the Lord comes at the end of the tribulation in power and great glory. And he's going to have the similar... uh, Feast for all the fowls of the air and for all the beasts of the field. And basically here the fowls are spoken of. I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried with a loud voice saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw another beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. So at that great battle of Armageddon, at the end of the tribulation, when Jesus comes in power and great glory, he's going to say that to all the fowls of the air to come because 
He is going to judge the wicked nations that still remain, and he's going to deliver his people Israel, and he's going to spread a feast for the fowls of heaven because they would not repent of their sins. You go back and read in the 14th, 15th chapter and on back, that in spite of all of God's mercy and of all that God did and and of all of God's judgment, they still would not repent of their sins and turn to God. And therefore, they had to suffer the consequences. You know, God is a God of love. But God is also a God of judgment. And He's a God of wrath. And His wrath is against sin and all ungodliness. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all sin and ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. It says because they knew not God, they did not return to God, they wouldn't repent of sin, God brought judgment. And He does the same thing and will do the same thing. Instead of rushing here and there with diplomatic plans, these people back in our context of our scripture that we're talking about the land of the shadow shadowing wings which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia and in the Bible if you want to go and find the references you, you could identify them as the Cushites they will go to Jerusalem with gifts for the Lord and for the king of Judah Second Chronicles 32, verses 20 through 23. Let me read this for you. Second Chronicles 32, verses 22 and 23. 20 through 23, I should say. It says this, And for this cause Hezekiah the king and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, prayed and cried to, to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel, which cut off all the mighty men of valor and the leaders and the captains in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame of face to his own land. In other words, he was defeated. And when he was coming to the house of his God, they that came forth of his own bowels slew him there with the sword. He met his defeat. Then verse 22. Thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all... uh, other and guided them on every side. In verse 23, And many brought gifts unto the Lord to Jerusalem, and presents to Hezekiah king of Judah, so that he was magnified in the sight of all the nation from thenceforth. So, when, when uh, Christ's kingdom is established, the Gentile nations, this is a prediction of future things as well, but when Christ's kingdom is established, the Gentile nations will go to Mount Zion to worship the Lord and bring Him gifts. So turn to Isaiah chapter 60 and verses 1 through 7. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light. The conversion of the Gentiles, when the time and the days of the, the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about, and see. All they gather themselves together, they come to thee. Thy sons shall come from far. And thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. 
Then thou shalt see and flow together, and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged, because of the abundance of the sea shall be, shall be converted unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. We're looking forward to a time when the Gentiles will turn to God and the nations all over the earth as well as his own people. The multitude of camels shall cover thee and the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all they uh, from Seba, Sheba shall come and they shall bring gold and incense and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kadar shall be gathered together unto thee and the rams of Nebel shall minister unto thee they shall come up with the, with acceptance on mine altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. So there's a future time when nations will bring gifts to the Lord. I think that we uh, will have to not take up the next one, but if you'll look at the next chapter, we'll take it up in our next lesson, the Lord willing, in the burden of Egypt. Beginning with chapter 19, verse 1. Notice it says, The burden of Egypt, behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud. We'll take up that whole section and that chapter, and it has a great deal more to say about Egypt and their restoration and their conversion to God, as well as uh, another nation that we would least think would be called God's people, and yet they'll be called God's people. And there's something so amazing in this, next chapter that you'll find that the nations that I can't help but mention it but the nations of Assyria now listen get this Assyria which is now Iraq that's Assyria and Egypt both of these enemies of Israel being called God's people along with Israel and being united and peace finally in the Middle East and that's a miraculous thing this is one of the greatest chapters in Isaiah as far as the future of Israel and the peace in the Middle East is concerned. I don't want you to miss it. The reason I'm telling you this, can you imagine today Iraq and Egypt and Israel and God calls them all one people? That's what's going to happen. That's what Isaiah tells us. And God's going to save them. There must be multitudes of Muslims that will be saved. And Egypt's Christians are there. There are many Christians in Egypt. But God is going to convert them, so to speak, wholly as a nation, as well as the other ones. And Israel, his own people. And they're going to be united together. And he's going to call them my people. Thank God for his grace. Okay?